O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. That's from Psalm 131, which is our psalm for the day. Here we are, Thursday, March the 25th, 2021, counting down towards Easter. But still, there's much to learn. There's much to appreciate. There's much to prepare us before Easter. And we're not ready to celebrate quite yet. So here we get in Jeremiah 26 in the uh, Old Testament lesson today. It's the first 16 verses of Jeremiah 26. And Jeremiah is told to go and stand in the court of the Lord's house. Go to the temple, Jeremiah, and stand there and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words I command you to speak and don't hold back a word. Maybe they'll listen. If so, I relent of the disaster that I intend to do against them because they're evil deeds. Here's what you're going to say to them, Jeremiah. Say this, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me to walk in my law, that I've set before you, and listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, that I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. Shiloh was the first place that they worshipped. It was the place where Eli was and his sons. It was the place where Samuel was. And that place had not been used as a worship place in a very, very long time. The Lord had abandoned it because of the wickedness of the priests. And so Jeremiah's word to them is to say, if, if you do that, if you continue in your wicked ways, if you don't turn away, then this place, my house, this glorious temple built by Solomon, will be gone and it'll be gone forever. It'll become a waste. It'll be a curse for all the nations of the earth. In other words, it'll be a place that shows the world what happens when Israel abandons its God the only true God in the universe. And so that he gives that word. And, and, you know, when Jonah gives a word to the uh, pagans up in Babylon in Nineveh, they repent. In dust and ashes, they hear it, they receive it, and they repent of their wicked ways, at least for a season of time. That's not what happens here, though. It infuriates the people who hear it. And priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him and say, saying, you shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, say, this house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant? And all the people gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. Well, that went well. <laughs> they brought him to the officials of Judah. They took him from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat, the officials of Judah, in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. This is where judgment would be pronounced. It would be where the Sanhedrin would sit and meet. And so Jeremiah, all by himself, is brought by the prophets, the priests, and the people and dragged before the Sanhedrin. Does that sound familiar? It does, with one huge exception, and that is the people. The people weren't there when Jesus was tried. That's the reason that it worked. They learned. They learned their lesson that if you let the people be there, then the mob might turn against you. And so here, everybody goes 
And so they bring him before him, and they lay the case out before them. This man deserves the death sentence because he has prophesied against this city. As you have heard with your own ears, how dare he prophesy against this city, even though he said, thus says the Lord. So Jeremiah then spoke, and he said, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city and all the words you've heard. I'm not taking a single one of them back. Now, therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will relent of this disaster he's pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I'm in your hands. Do with me as it seems good and right to you. Only know this for certain. If you put me to death, you'll bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. Does that sound familiar? It sounds exactly how the trial went with Jesus. And they brought innocent blood upon themselves and upon the city and their inhabitants because of the words that Jesus spoke to them. But here you got this huge crowd. you got all these people who have come there from all the cities of Judah. You have the prophets and the priests making the case, the accusation. They're the defense attorney. The people are just there. They're not the jury. The Sanhedrin is really the jury. <clears throat> and so then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. The authorities and the people told the prophets and the priests they were wrong and this was actually a man speaking the word of the Lord to them. They learned their lessons. They didn't allow the people to be there. That's the reason Judas sold Jesus out in the way he did. And that's the reason he got the 30 shekels is because he told them when the people wouldn't be around, when Jesus would be alone and they could arrest him privately and conduct a kangaroo court. Here, Jeremiah gets off because the people are struck to the core by what he had to say because of his willingness to lay down his life for the words that he had spoken. In the gospel, we're getting close because they're getting angrier and angrier and Jesus' claims are getting higher and higher. Remember yesterday, he said he was a good shepherd. And only God's the good shepherd because in the Old Testament, in the prophets, you see on multiple occasions, God says, I'm going to get rid of the wicked shepherds, the bad shepherds, then I will come and I will shepherd my sheep. And so when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, he's just said, that day has come. Here he's going to go even further. So the Jews begin to question about this whole thing because he said this. Many of them said he has a demon and he's insane. Why listen to him? And others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of a blind? Finally, they move away from this whole idea about we don't know where he's from. And they say, you know, hey, look, look what he's done here. He just did something pretty extraordinary. And about that same time, the Feast of Dedication, the Hanukkah festival, took place at Jerusalem and it was winter and he's walking in the temple. The Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. It's not an illegitimate question except for the fact that they've got to come to faith. They've got to believe and there's a different ending of this story than they believe there's going to be. But Jesus knows the end of this story. I answer, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And if he ended it there, it wouldn't have been horrible. And then he said, I and the Father are one. No, God is one. That's their response, essentially. That, that's, that flies right in the face of Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord your God is one. That's the, the basic claim of Judaism to have brought into the world is this monotheism idea that the God is one. There's not gods. There's only one God. And so what's their response? They pick up their stones to stone him again. And Jesus responds and says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which of these are you going to stone me for? Oh, it's not that. It's not a good work we're going to stone you for, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. And then he proves to them that the word gods has been used before in the Bible about the people to whom the word of the Lord came. And he said, so you're calling me a blasphemer because I said that, even though this is other thing is in Scripture? He said, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works, that you'll know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. They sought to arrest him, but they went away because it was not yet time. And so he went away across the Jordan to where John had been baptizing at first, but many came to him. And they said, John didn't do anything, but everything John said about this man is true. And many believed in him there. So the people are coming to faith. You know, it's an interesting thing because they say he's either insane or he has a demon. You know, one of the first arguments I think that I ever heard from an apologetic standpoint was by uh, C.S. Lewis. And it had to do with this very idea of Jesus, what, who is he and what is he? And I'll read it to you here. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that door open to us. He didn't intend to. Now, that's considered to be a really poor argument. Um, and it's, it's considered to be a poor argument pretty much for one reason. And that reason is, is that because every claim that he made is only what we know from the Bible. We don't know it directly from his lips. And the Bible could be wrong. Um, the, they could have embellished these claims and all that. And so it's not a really good apologetic argument. And, it, it, you know, it, maybe it's not, right? Because it's got a, an argument, an apologetic argument needs to be able to stand on its own. But the reality is you can't accept Jesus as a great moral teacher apart from the Bible. So what you can say is, is that I accept this part of Jesus. He's a great moral teacher. Well, on what basis do you determine that he's a great moral teacher? Well, it's sort of your own judgment. Okay, I like the things that it says that he said. I don't, however, like a whole lot of the other stuff. The only way you can know whether he's a great moral teacher or not is to know what he taught and then to have some basis on which to compare that to every other moral teacher. You've got in your own mind some basis of morality that you're forming this opinion on. Well, that's your opinion. 
It makes you the judge and the arbiter to be able to see that. So even though it's considered to be a weak claim because it relies on the Bible and, and that has to be verified in order to authenticate the claims, you can't claim that he's a great moral teacher without the Bible and without some view of your own of morality. And if it just if, if what you're saying is he's a great moral teacher because his moral philosophies agree with my own moral philosophies, well, then that's not about him. It's about you. So it, it's, it's a better argument than people give it credit for. But it's for Christians, that's the thing that we can always hang back on. If we believe in the Word of God, then we can always come back to this argument to say, yes, Jesus is who he said he was. And he's making this basic argument to these people. I mean, here they say he's either insane or he has a demon. It's one or the other. Well, it's not one or the other. He could also be who he claims to be. But they've already ruled that out, and that's why they determine that he's a blasphemer. And so then Paul comes around to this whole idea, and, and he's still grieving in Romans 11 about the rejection of the Jews of God. And, and he asks the better question, which is, I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. He said, "For I, he can't. You can't say that he has, because I'm an Israelite. I'm one. A lot of people around me are Jews. There are Jews in the church all over the place, he's saying. He said, you know, all this is true. He, he reminds them of Elijah. And Elijah says, you know, hey, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. And God looks at Elijah and said, you have no earthly idea what you're talking about. I've kept for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone, big boy. Sometimes it's easy to feel that way. But we're not. We're not. And it's God's grace and his love for us that gives us brothers and sisters to come around us who share that faith. And, and, and we need never take that for granted. We need always to cultivate the fellowship of the faithful. But he says this, this whole thing is there's still a remnant. So God didn't reject his people. But that remnant is chosen by grace. It's not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. And so then he says, so what's going to happen here down the line? And, and what he believes, clearly, he quotes from um, Isaiah and then from um, David's words. And then he is hopeful because he understands that God is a God of covenants and he understands that covenants are eternal. He is hopeful in a way that says, I know, not I hope, but I know that ultimately God has not forsaken his people because he has a covenant with his people, and he's that kind of God, that he keeps covenants whether they keep covenant or not. He says, look, I, I think this is quite possibly a situation where God is bringing you in and blessing you in order that he might make his people jealous and want the same thing you have and accept Jesus then as the Messiah in that way. And then he closes that argument with, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their full inclusion mean? I don't know if he's thinking some of these people are anti-Semites or what, but, but it sounds to me <laughs> like he's appealing to them to pray for and work for the salvation of the Jews. Because if, if, if their trespass means great things, for you, and if their failure means great things for you, how much better would their inclusion be for you? We need to pray always that God would do a great work and save all people, whether we care for those people or we don't care for those people. 
maybe particularly we need to pray for those people we don't care for because they're the ones who need to be saved. <laughs> Life, the world, everything would be better if the people we don't like were saved. So maybe that's the key to changing things around and, and following Jesus' injunction to love your enemies. What we need is people who are willing to love their enemies enough to lay down their lives and lay down their enmity and pray. Pray for the, the inclusion of those people. Either he's a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. And if he's Lord, then let's follow him in every single way.